I don't know a better way to introduce this episode than by just saying the Biltmore Estate is one of my favorite places in the world. It's the largest private home in the United States, and it's simply unrivaled on this continent for old world beauty and elegance. The grounds of this estate cover roughly 12.5 square miles, and the house measures 175,000 square feet. Yes, you heard me right, 175,000. There are 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, and a downstairs servant's quarters. So vast and timeless, it would make any fan of Downton Abbey swoon. No cost was spared in the construction of this masterpiece, and even 125 years later, the craftsmanship and attention to detail puts our own era to shame. I've been three times now, and on the third, I had the privilege of sitting down with Chief Curator Darren Papoor. If you could, could you just tell me in the simplest form for anyone who isn't familiar with the Biltmore, what is the Biltmore? Biltmore is the historic home of George Washington Vanderbilt. It was built and completed in around 1895. George Vanderbilt was descended from the Commodore Vanderbilt and is a member of one of the wealthiest families in America. And he created a country estate here in Western North Carolina. Part of what brought me back for this third visit was a story I'd heard about the estate hiding masterpieces from the National Gallery during the Second World War. After the amount of art theft and destruction that had occurred throughout Europe at the hands of the Nazis, many countries began hiding their most prized artistic possessions in order to avoid the same fate. In England, the government sent prized paintings underground into mines and subway stations. In France, they sent many to a medieval castle in the center of the country, the Chateau de Chambord, in the Loire Valley. In the United States, they sent them to a number of places, and one of them was the Biltmore. I asked Darren for the rest of the story. It was during World War II, and Biltmore had been open to the public since 1930, and was still family-owned by Edith Vanderbilt at that point. As the war continued, there was growing concern with several museums, both nationally, about just the security of their collections. And if anyone's seen the movie The Monuments Men, they probably know the story of, in a lot of different museums, they had plans to hide some of the nation's greatest treasures in case the war turned unexpectedly. And so for, in our case, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. had just opened in 1941, and the director, the first director of the National Gallery of Art, was actually a friend of Edith Vanderbilt, and he had actually stayed at Biltmore in the 1920s. And so he remembered that Biltmore was in a remote location on a vast estate with pretty secluded from everyone else. The house was built to be fireproof. And so for all those reasons, he naturally thought of Biltmore as a great place to hide some of the nation's greatest artworks. How did that happen? How did they bring it here? Where in the house did they put it? And did the people know that it was there? Okay, so in 1941, when the idea first was talked about, he reached out to Edith Vanderbilt, and she said, of course, you could use Biltmore House to store the artwork. And so they came down in July of 1941, and they visited Biltmore House. They looked at some potential areas, 
and made a plan really at that point. And they identified the music room as the, the location where they could secretly hide the artwork. And so they went ahead and the National Gallery of Art paid to retrofit the room. They put in steel vaulted doors and the archways. They covered it with draperies on the outside and they retrofitted the inside with steel racks to hang the paintings. They put steel bars on the windows and they basically had the room prepared in case the nation went to war. And of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened and it was just like three weeks later that they pulled nearly 100 works of art, created them up, shipped them down by train. They arrived in the train station here in Biltmore Village. They were put on trucks, and it was during a winter storm, so it was snowy and icy roads. And the director talks about in his memoirs the fear of Raphael's painting falling out of the truck. The truck goes off an icy road, but they all made it just fine. They were placed in the music room. It was concealed. There were armed guards around the clock that stayed here. Curators stayed here to monitor the paintings and the sculptures. And guests were, Billmore House was open to the public for about a year during that time. Guests walked right by the music room, completely oblivious and unaware that some of the nation's greatest treasures were on the other side of the wall. So was there an armed guard on the outside or the inside of the room? I don't know if they were stationed right there because that would probably be too obvious, but they lived here and they had rounds that they did. And I'm sure they, during the daytime and nighttime. How long were all the paintings here? They came in January of 1942 and then they left in October of 1944. So two, what's that, two and a half years? So they left before the war ended? Before the war ended, but by the fall of 44, the war had really turned both in Europe and in the Pacific. And I think they felt comfortable at that point where they could bring them back to Washington and reopen the museum. And the artworks were returned in great fanfare. There was a press release that went out. It was no longer a secret. And they thanked Biltmore for its generosity there was a parade of vehicles and the moving trucks that had the artwork and that came down. I don't know which street it was in Washington, D.C., but they definitely made a pretty big deal about it. On the drive up here, my first time, the drive from when you enter the front gate until you get to the house is pretty much indescribable. What was the reasoning for that? Was there a reason? Was he just wanting the house at this location? I think we really have Frederick Law Olmsted to thank for the approach to the house and the master genius that he was. He's, you know, a landscape architect who basically had his fingerprints on every park system and designed landscape in this country or just about. And George Washington Vanderbilt reached out to Olmsted when he first had the idea of building a home here. And Olmsted advised him on what he thought that George Vanderbilt should do. And so he talked about siding the house on top of the hill with a beautiful view of the valley below. And he talked about farming the river bottoms and starting the nation's first scientific forestry program. And also he talked about how to design the landscapes around the house. And part of that is the approach road. And that was very intentional in the design in that it was as if you were to be driving through a forest 
as you make your approach to the house. And then as you make that final turn, the formality of the French Renaissance Chateau, it would just strike you as a beautiful surprise as you turn the corner. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you look at the house, there's, I mean, it's huge, clearly. When you're doing the long drive, you just wonder, how did they get all that here if there wasn't a helicopter to bring it? Do you know how they brought everything up? So there was a whole infrastructure that was put into place, and it included uh, an actual railroad system. There were several railroad spurs that were built, and it was a gentle incline from Biltmore Village up to the house site. And so they had to navigate ravines and things like that. So they actually had trestles built, but there were actual rail lines that went all the way from the village all the way up to the front door of Biltmore House. And so that brought all of the building supplies, all of the workers every day, they rode the train. So that's everything from Indiana limestone to slate to iron I-beams to stone. All of those materials were brought up to the house site. Do you have a favorite room in the house? Oh gosh, that's so hard. It changes. And it's a little bit like trying to pick your favorite child. You don't like to do that, but but I would say it wavers. But to me, oh, uh, somewhere between the library, the billiard room, the oak sitting room, and the architectural model room are probably at the top of my list. What makes them at the top of your list? I just think they say a lot about George Vanderbilt and how involved he was. And it says a lot about his personality, his collecting tastes. And you walk into the library and it just it has George Vanderbilt written all over it from the ceiling painting to his prized book collection. And he was an intellectual, a Renaissance man, a world traveler. And those rooms stand out to me for one reason or another. 
they just say a lot about George Vanderbilt and who he was. Before you started working here, did you know anything about George? I did. I, of course, was familiar with the Vanderbilt family. And I grew up here, so I was somewhat familiar with George Vanderbilt. Obviously, I became much more familiar with him after I've been researching him for 22 plus years. So You mentioned that how you're a local and you were a local before you started working here. What is it like being a local person who grew up here, knowing that Biltmore is here? It's really pretty amazing when you think that we are in Western North Carolina and that of Vanderbilt chose to build his country estate and his French Renaissance Chateau, the largest home in America here in Western North Carolina. It's pretty amazing. It has national significance and the fact that it's here is great. I grew up here, but I, I went away and, you know, what I studied, I was a history major in college and grad school, and I learned that real the Biltmore's big significance, not only to architecture, but is the scientific forestry story. And I think that's the one of the real, and honestly, that's probably another story that a lot of people don't know about Biltmore. The birth of the U.S. Forest Service and all that, that's right here at Biltmore. Can you tell me any more about that? When George Vanderbilt invited Olmsted to come in early 1889, and George had purchased a little bit of, of land here, the way it's told in letters is that George turned to Olmsted and said, I've purchased some land with the idea of building a house here. I love the mountain scenery and the mild climate. And, but now I'm thinking, perhaps I've been a bit foolish. Have I made a mistake? And Olmsted came down and spent about 10 days touring all of the land, the homeside area. And of course, it looked much different than it looks now. A lot of it had been over-farmed and clear-cut. But Olmsted told George, you did not make a mistake, and this is what I would do. You know, build your house, have your home site. We'll landscape the grounds around the house, design your gardens, farm your river bottom. And he said it would be a respectable endeavor to really have the first model of scientific forestry in this country. And George was a conservationist, enjoyed the outdoors, and I think that really spoke to him. And so he took Olmsted up on his advice. We have Olmsted to thank for so much. So then George reached out to a gentleman named Gifford Pinchot, who was the first American trained in scientific forestry. He was trained in Europe. And he came and he started the forestry program. He went on to start the U.S. Forest Service, so he left after a few years. And then George hired a German forester named Carl Schenk, and Carl Schenk started the Biltmore Forest School. Really, the legacy of that school, we are still reaping the benefits of that school today. I mean, basically every important American forester was trained at that forest school and went on to have an influence basically on all of our national forests throughout the country. My last question, my first time visiting the house, the house is massive. I mean, when I walk in, I kept thinking, how could this ever feel homey for someone? For you, working here for so long and, and experiencing the house, is there a story or something to where you saw something and it reminded you of, oh, a family lived here. Gosh, so it's a large home, it is. And when you have thousands of people going through the house, sometimes it may not feel like a home. We tried to present it as a home. I think it was very important for the Vanderbilts. Hospitality was very important to them. 
And so we try to make every guest feel, that's why we call them guests, they are our guests. Um, but that Vanderbilt hospitality is very important and we try to make sure that we carry that on today. But I will say that one night, pretty early in my career, I was working a film shoot at nighttime and it was in the winter and the front doors were closed and the low hum of all of the guests in the house, all that was gone and it was just really quiet. And I walked into the library and they were breaking down the photo shoot and it was just me and I think one other person at that point and it had started snowing outside and the fireplace was lit and it felt very warm and intimate. It was the first moment where I stopped and I wasn't working, but I just kind of stopped and reflected on where I was. And I looked outside and I saw the snow and, and I thought, I really, really just want to grab a book off that shelf and sit in that chair and make myself at home. Of course, I couldn't, but, but that, was, that was kind of my first impression of like, wow, this was a pretty special place. Looking over the list of works that were held here, it's staggering. 62 paintings and 17 sculptures, all masterworks, were held in this building. I'll include a list of these works on our website for those of you who are interested. The artwork that was here, it was like a who's who's of Art History 101. You've got Rembrandt. I mean, all the old masters, or most of the old masters, you know, Raphael, uh, Rembrandt, Gainsborough, Van Dyck, Reynolds, Ah, who am I forgetting? The iconic portrait of George Washington by Gilbert Stuart. I mean, it was really a who's who of world famous artists. A lot of the Italian Renaissance masters. It was really amazing. It gives me goosebumps as a curator just to think that these artworks, as important as they were, they were here. I want to thank Darren again for joining us, as well as Leanne Donnelly, Senior Public Relations Manager for Biltmore, who made this episode possible. And of course, I want to encourage you, at least once in your life, to visit the greatest house in America, a house that was there for our country in its moment of need during World War II, and in a state that has supported our government and military for the last 125 years. In our next episode, we'll be heading to the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Gatlinburg, where I'll sit down with Artifacts and Program Manager Ali Pennington to discuss the most impressive true crime collection I've ever encountered. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland.
Gambling today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.